Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled, Music Selective Neural Populations Arise Without Musical Training. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and co-authors Dana Bobinger and Nancy Conwisher. So let's get started. Many thanks, Dana and Nancy, for participating in our podcast series. Your paper generates not only great interest for neuroscientists, but the topic is of general interest for anybody who cares about music, which is basically every human being and all the songbirds among our listeners. The concept that there are specific music selective areas in the human brain is fascinating and raises many fundamental questions. Could you perhaps provide an overview of the current state in the field? You know, what do we know about this? What do we don't know? And where are the uncertainties? So maybe if you can go from here, that would be great. Maybe yeah. I'll start in and then let Dana take over from that, just stepping back uh, a few years. So when, when we started working on music in my lab, um, there was not a lot known about the representation of music in human auditory cortex. There had been a lot of studies that showed activation in auditory cortex when people listen to music, but the question of whether we have special machinery for music per se um, was not really clear. There had been evidence from patients with focal brain damage who seemed to have fairly selective loss of music, or sometimes the opposite case, people would be aphasic and lose language but not lose music. Um, so cases like that had been reported in the literature but people hadn't been able to see with functional MRI a clear selective neural response to music. So we set out to look at that a few years ago. Um, originally, we was me and Sam Norman Hegner and Josh McDermott. Uh, and we developed some methods to try to find whether there were selective neural populations for music in the brain, even if they might be physically interleaved with other neural populations that do other things. That makes it a challenge to find them because they overlap in the brain. And so we had to come up with some fancy math to pull them apart. But then when Dana joined, we'd already found some good evidence for selective neural responses. And then Dana came in with her own question. So let's let her tell yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. That. Let's go into depth of this particular study. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, maybe if you can summarize first, you know, your findings of this particular study, and then maybe a follow-up question later on, on, the methods. I think that's also very critical. So Dana, go ahead, please. Yeah. So as Nancy said, in, in this experiment, we wanted to follow up on some of the um, research that Nancy and Sam and Josh had already done, where they found this sort of set of neural populations in human non-primary auditory cortex that respond more to music than to other kinds of natural sounds. And we wanted to see whether these neural populations are present even in people who had no formal music training. Um, and we found that they are, which suggests that this selectivity for music is something that's pretty fundamental and widespread in the human brain. And we also were able to look in more depth at these neural populations and find that they respond strongly to a wide range of music, including music that we tend to hear in sort of our culture, but also music from less familiar genres and cultures and to uh, music that sounds very different acoustically. So it responds strongly to music that has a strong melody, but also to drum music that has a lot of rhythm, but not much melodic content. So it seems like these neural populations really are sort of broadly responsive to music as a whole. I think this was uh, something that fascinated me very much is the general 
feature of what defines music that is really coming to this very specific brain area. And I think for the listener, kind of it would be interesting to see, you know, what kind of range of music did you play and how the brain recognized this as music, even though it's very different. And then, Dana, maybe you can also play some uh, sounds that were clearly not music. So we know exactly kind of uh, how you conducted your experiments. Sure. So yeah, we, we had a wide variety of music that is sort of more common to hear, at least for our American listeners. And we had, you know, 50 more sort of examples of various music genres. Um, and then in this experiment, we supplemented the, the sound set that we've used in our previous studies with additional music from other sorts of cultures. And then, as you say, we wanted to also try to choose kinds of music that have very different acoustic features. So we we expanded um, and included a lot of different drum clips from various genres and cultures as well. So yeah, the idea was to get a sort of wide variety of musical sounds to complement some of the other sounds in this sound set that Sam had put together that's intended to sort of capture all of the kinds of sounds that we hear in our everyday lives. So many of those sounds are things like speech and footsteps and animal sounds, machine sounds. Um, and here's some examples of, of those. It's supposed to either rain or snow. Hannah is good at compromising. That is so, so yeah. cool. And, and Dana, so, and, and Nancy, basically, our brain knows if it's music or not music, if it's just a sound, and the, the areas are very, very specific for that. So basically, if someone says, uh, you open a, a glass of beer, and it makes this beer sound that we just heard, and they say, oh, this sounds music to me, it actually doesn't sound music to that person. It's recognized as not being music. So this leads to the question, you know, what really defines music and what differentiated from language and other sounds, even if, for example, in drumming, there's no melody, yet we know it's music. So what can you tell us about this? I, I don't think this study is going to answer that question. So that's been a fraught <laughs> question. Um, you know, back in the 50s, John Cage made this musical piece called Water Walk, where he basically was very radical at the time. He basically walked around on stage and like, you know, dropped things on the floor and poured stuff into a bathtub and, you know, just had objects banging into each other and water pouring over things to make different sounds. And the idea was to raise this question of what counts as music. And what that shows and the, you know, extended discussion in the literature is it's very, very hard to define what counts as music and cultures differ in what they think counts as real music. So in our study, we sort of sidestep that question by saying, let's take cases where all of our subjects are just gonna, gonna agree, that's music. They may like it, they may not like it, but they're not gonna say that's not music. So we didn't really push the edges. So we sort of finessed the question in this study of what, you know, what is music really? And we just said, let's go with people's understanding of what's music and let's test that. And so what our finding shows is that across that, extremely crazily broad range of different kinds of sounds, 
all of them mm. activate the same neural population. That's that's cool. Yeah, because I mean, I know actually a, a lot of work of uh, John Cage and, and he changed the piano, like put some dampers in and, and things. So it, it gave incredibly different sound. And I mean, experimenting with music is is a fascinating area. And yet, as I say, I mean, it's it's great that the brain has these specific areas that recognize it. And I think it's also nice to see that there is no cultural differentiation, that, that it really recognizes music from all different cultures and, and process this information. So there is another question. Uh, it's about the pitch. Pitch is something very clear feature of music. Yet it's not only defined by um, the frequency, but really by our perception. So this area, does it recognize pitches? And uh, what do we know about this? Yeah, so, so you're, you're right. Pitch is definitely very important for music. And a large majority of the musical stimuli that we have do have very strong sense of pitch and a strong sense of melody. But like, like we said, Many of the different stimuli that we have are drums, which don't have a strong sense of pitch and definitely don't have sort of melodic contours to them. So they're, they're very different. And we see that this music selective population responds pretty highly to these drum stimuli as well. But in talking about sort of pitch specifically, there's actually another sort of set of regions in human non-primary auditory cortex that do seem to respond to sounds that have a pitch. So that includes music, they respond very strongly to music, but also to things like speech and animal calls that also have a sense of pitch as well. So there does seem to be regions of the human brain, at least, that care about whether sound has pitch, but don't necessarily differentiate between music and non-music. And then this sort of separate neural population that we can pull out using our experimental methods seems to care sort of above and beyond that about music, whether or not it seems to have sort of pitch and melody. Do you think there's a hierarchical order of, of you know, these areas that don't that listen to pitch but don't care, is it music or not? Are they then projecting to the music area that is more specific, like a higher order? Or you think it's, it's all processed in parallel? It's a great question. Would we so like to know the answer to that? It's very hard to answer in humans. Um, one's first guess is that there's probably some kind of hierarchy the pitch responses in the human brain oddly overlap with part of primary auditory cortex, which is weird. It's as though mm -hmm. in visual cortex, you'd have your color regions or motion regions overlapping with V1, like what? But anyway, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's what it does. And so in some sense, it's a little bit closer to those primary regions actually overlapping with them. Uh, than the music or other high-level parts of auditory cortex suggesting a hierarchy. But to really establish that, we would need other data we don't really have, like latency of response data, or most importantly, connectivity data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, despite all the talk about the human connectome project uh, and all the effort that, gone, that has gone into that, it does not have the green to tell us about the fine uh, connectivity of one cortical region to the next. So unfortunately we don't know what that connectivity is. And uh, the, me the methods in humans just aren't good enough to answer that. We could look in animals. But I mean, you're, I mean, your study kind of is a basis for this because I mean, once you define the area there should be ways, I mean, to, Wouldn't to you characterize projection. Wouldn't I you would think, think so. <laughs> well, so we have two methods. We have uh, diffusion tensor imaging and diffusion tractography, where you follow the direction of maximum water diffusion 
which follows the orientation of axon fibers. And that works great in big fiber bundles in the brain. So you can find all the major tracks and they are just crystal clear in diffusion uh, tractography data. And you can find some patterns from big fiber bundles in and out of cortex. But there are many, many problems that arise when you actually want to get literal and say, does this patch of cortex connect to that patch of cortex? Because then you need to get out of cortex, you need to make sharp angle turns in your tractography, make other sharp angle turns coming back in, and all of the algorithms assume you aren't making sharp angle turns. There's just a million problems that arise. Mm -hmm. So it's a real, it's to me, one of the things that really frustrates me in human cognitive neurosciences. I've spent the last 25 years studying lots of different patches of cortex that do really interesting things. But God help us figure out how they're connected to each other. We have loose ideas, but none of the current methods can really nail that, unfortunately. That's why we need the next generation of the Danas, et cetera. So (laughs) (laughs) you will be busy. That's right. But but Nancy, and I think you mentioned already the animal model, but I think the problem with the animal model is that, you know, the primates are not ideal, correct? Mm -hmm. Interesting thing. We, you know, if you look at high level visual processing in macaques and humans, it is really similar. And you, we can now look in great detail at the functional organization of the ventral visual pathway involved in visual recognition in macaques and humans. And not only is it similar, but you find these you know, weird kind of bizarre arrangements of functional organization that are just mirrored. For example, we showed a few years ago that if you look on the bottom of the brain in the ventral visual pathway in humans, there's a band of face selective cortex, and next to that is a band of color selective cortex, and ne- next to that is a band of scene selective cortex. So, okay, that's kind of weird. Faces, color, scenes, like what? But anyway, it's mm-hmm. very systematic. It's true in everybody. And if you look in monkeys, you find the same thing, a band of faces, then color, then scenes. And so on monkeys, it's out on the lateral surface. On, in humans, it's on the ventral surface, but it seems almost impossible to imagine that that isn't inherited from a common ancestor, namely absolutely homologous Mm -hmm. between monkeys and humans. Whereas in auditory cortex, even in a mid-level thing like pitch, you don't find that pitch response at all in monkeys. And so it seems as though high-level auditory cortex is just a completely different thing in humans and monkeys. And if you think about it, we, we use audition very differently than monkeys, right? We use it primarily for speech and music and they don't really have either <laughs> yeah and, and you know it brings me actually to another kind of interesting observation and i heard this from hugo mercant from uh, from mexico who told me that you know if you have a beat and play it to a monkey they cannot clap a beat which is something so intrinsic to humans you know you have great music and then you'll start clapping and dancing and everything yes but apparently not uniquely so, human you if you haven't seen Snowball, the costume. oh yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And that brings me to the the specialty of songbirds, you know, and birds because there they have very complex learned song behavior, and I think it seems to be that birds are way better animal models to study these very intrinsic questions. And and I, I've seen just a National Geographic movie where a bird in the wild starts to imitate human speech and things like this and so i think when it comes to music probably we need to learn from the bird and not from the monkeys so yeah another question and you know we talk auditory cortex and uh which is a sensory side of music so 
what about the motor music, the motor part of music, you know, like the playing music, the beating the beat, et cetera. So, so is there a specific music motor area? Yeah. So music production, I'm, <laughs> I'm not really an expert in, in that side of things, but we know that producing music uh, involves a lot of very precise motor control, um, either over, you know, your hands and feet or your vocal apparatus and the ability to sort of synchronize with other people or, you know, pull out a beat, um, as you said. And then, so it's kind of a sort of constant feedback loop between the perceptual system and the motor system. And because of that, making music involves all kinds of different brain regions and, and systems, uh, including motor cortex. But as far as I know, there's not really any evidence for sort of a motor region or some region that is specific to music production. These regions seem to be involved in all kinds of other sorts of motor and sort of production abilities as well. But yeah, I, mean, I have not heard about that. I and mean, isn't there also evidence that you get some activation of motor cortex just listening to beats, even if you're not producing them? Yeah, so it does seem yeah. to be the case that, that just listening to music does um, activate motor regions and other sort of subcortical like basal ganglia mm -hmm. regions. I'm not sure if we know whether they're sort of causally involved in, in perceiving music or whether it's some sort of impulse mm -hmm. to tap your foot or, or pull out the, the beat. But yes, there's definitely involvement of, of the motor system in, in music. The quick question is, you know, like, is it a music specific motor area that you need to activate in order to orchestrate playing a music piece or something. I mean, in this bird song, again, we have very specific song, songbird motor regions, you know, like the RA, I think, HVC, et cetera. So, so it would be kind of interesting to see to what extent we have also the specialty that you see in the auditory cortex. And then we see also for language, correct? I mean, there's also a motor language region. And uh, so maybe, well, maybe you have to, to look closer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Actually, the latest evidence I've heard of, this is the work of Ev Fedorenko and some of her colleagues. She's been studying language understanding, but also language production. And I believe she's finding that, the, that there are not mm -hmm. specific, at least with functional MRI, they're not specific regions that respond to speech production as opposed to other mouth movements. So if you scan people, for example, while they're making sound mm -hmm. versus while they're like chewing or something, right? Or otherwise moving their tongue in their mouth. Uh, I think you do not get selective responses. And so it's quite possible that you have, you know, generic motor cortex for the mouth and then some kind of higher level, you know, language system that has to feed mm -hmm. into it rather than a specific part of, of motor cortex. And, and I would guess that it's probably the yeah, same for music. music. You have, exactly. you have activation in, you know, hand regions. If you're playing an instrument, maybe more so even in the regions, if you're playing like violin or something that involves more sort of precise movement in one hand versus another, you might see sort of specialized activations for that. But those would be the same regions that are used when you're sort of moving your hands and doing other sorts of things as well. Maybe you get the pressure to study Perman or, you know, Yo-Yo Ma in your <laughs> scanner. We get a better insight into this. Uh, now, uh, representation of rhythms, you know, like rhythm in music plays a big role. How important is the rhythm for recognizing music? Yeah, so uh, rhythm definitely plays a big role in sort of what we consider to be music and how we perceive music. 
Um, one of the sort of features about music that seems to differentiate it from a lot of other kinds of sounds is that it has uh, an isochronous beat, a sort of a regular beat. So that's true of, of most music, but there are definitely kinds of music that don't have as strong of a sense of beat. Um, mm -hmm. Some kinds of sort of Northern Indian music or even opera recitative, where we clearly recognize it as music, even if it has sort of not what we might consider musical rhythm. So I think rhythm is, is clearly very important along with sort of other things about, you know, discrete pitches and melodic information, but there's not really any one thing that seems to be sort of present in all of the music around the world and all of the things that we consider to be music. You know, when we think about rhythms, you know, rhythms are not only important for music, but it's also important in the brain as a mechanism for synchronization and coordinating different regions. And, and I know of work by David Preble, you know, where he postulates that there could be like an, an oscillator in the auditory cortex that, you know, segments cortical temporal processing. And, and the question is, I mean, I know you have done fMRI, but whether there are similar oscillatory processes in your specific area that play a role in, in processing music as an entity. I don't know whether you know more about it. Sorry for this broad question. <laughs> yeah, so, so we can't really say anything about this sort of fine temporal oscillations using fMRI. So we, can't, we don't really know whether it has anything to do with the, mm -hmm. the regions that we're looking at in our experiment. Um, but there is a lot of work from David Popel's lab and others, um, especially the work of Keith Doling, that has found that um, musicians' brains at least seem better able to synchronize with the beat in very slow music. So music that has a tempo of less than 60 beats per minute and that better synchrony seems to be involved in better performance on tasks that involve things like detecting small pitch distortions in the melodies. Um, so all that is, is super interesting. Um, and I don't closely follow that whole line of research But it's really difficult to tease apart whether the things that they're seeing are definitely the result of some kind of endogenous oscillator in auditory cortex that's sort of mm -hmm. parsing things and causally involved that way versus just being sort of the brain's responses um, that are evoked by a stimulus like music that has a regular beat to begin with. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really hard to disentangle those. And I know there's a lot of sort of modeling work trying to, trying to do that. But yes, this is definitely an area in, in auditory neuroscience where there's a lot of disagreement and hopefully we'll have better answers in the future, uh, maybe about yeah. these sort of music-specific regions as well. Great. Thank you, Dana. Now, you did not specifically aim for comparing non-musicians versus musicians, and you wrote like it would take a prohibitive amount of, of data to get there. And I think it's, it's a wonderful thing that you lay out your limitations of your study, but can you maybe for the listener also talk a little bit about your methods in your particular study and, and how that played a role? Yeah, so in this paper, we uh, started by recruiting a group of non-musicians, so 10 people from the Boston area who had no formal music training at any point in their lives. Um, which was actually extremely difficult because most people have, you know, at least a few years of piano lessons or they sang in the middle school choir or something, but we didn't want any of that. So we had to search for those people. And then we also recruited a set of 10 highly trained musicians. So mostly professional musicians or, or students at music conservatories. And then for each of these participants, we measured their brain responses using uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. 
um, while they listen to this large set of real world, world sounds, some of which we heard earlier. Um, and like I said, these sounds were sort of designed to include all of the sounds of people here in their everyday lives. And so as a result of this whole process, you end up with a, a huge data set that tells you how every location within auditory cortex is responding to each of these different sounds. And then we use a technique that was developed by a former grad student postdoc in our lab, Sam Norman Hagner, who's also an author on this paper, which takes this big data matrix and then reduces it into a small number of dimensions or component response profiles that together can explain the sort of responses of all of auditory cortex to this big set of natural sounds um, with the different components sort of contributing in different proportions within different subregions of auditory cortex. So this is all stuff that he had done in a previous experiment. And in that initial experiment, he found that you really only need sort of six dimensions to explain how auditory cortex responds in general. And several of these components reflect sort of uh, lower level acoustic features of the sounds like their frequency content or how much they vary over time or whether they have a, a pitch or not. Um, and that all agreed with things that we knew from sort of previous studies about auditory cortex. Um, but then what was especially cool is two of the components seem to reflect sort of higher level categories of sound rather than their acoustics. So one of these was um, selective for speech, responded to speech, but not much to any other sorts of sounds, um, which agreed with other studies in humans finding that there is speech selectivity in non-primary auditory cortex. But then I guess sort of the coolest and most surprising result was that this last component seemed to respond strikingly selectively for music. So it responded highly to instrumental music and vocal music and much less to other kinds of sounds. Um, so that was sort of surprising and something that people hadn't really been able to see before um, for some of the reasons that we mentioned earlier. And so this is what we were sort of seeking to explore more in, in this experiment. So we did this whole voxel decomposition analysis uh, separately for our group of non-musicians and our group of musicians. And we wanted to find out whether we would see the same music selective component, even in the brains of people who didn't have any sort of musical training. Wow. And you know what? I think uh, one of the implications is to know, is this there at birth or, or what kind of like role does evolution play in this? Do you, can you speculate on this or? Yeah. So our results, the fact that we do find this music selective response in, in people with no formal training suggests that, yeah, that this sort of response could be innate and sort of built into the brain at birth. Um, but it's also consistent with the idea that these populations might result from the huge amount of sort of passive exposure that we get throughout our lives. Music is everywhere, we hear it all the time. Um, so it's possible that, that that's sort of what is uh, necessary for the emergence of these, these neural populations. Yeah. yeah. The, the evolution question is a great one. You know, Darwin puzzled about music. You know, it was like with mm. the mystery, like we can all understand why people like food and sex and stuff and why they have language. These things are all important for survival, but why is it that every human culture has music? No non-human animal has music and we have no idea what it's for, right? It's just like <laughs> a fascinating, huge puzzle. And uh, you know, our study doesn't answer that because as Dana just said, um, it could be that it is learned within each individual, uh, even if they don't take lessons just from passive expo exposure. So that doesn't mean it's 
uh, innate and, and the product of natural selection. But it does mean that uh, at least within the broad range of people that we scan, fairly broad, um, you know, the brain is just gonna do this with the right exposure. So it's like the mm. default condition, you know, like music is gonna happen under normal exposure conditions and you're gonna have a special circuit in your brain to process it. And so in that sense, it seems like a, a basic element of, you know, what it is to be a human being or at least what it is mm -hmm. to be you know, a human being in our, in kind of growing up in the kind of environment uh, of people we've been studying. So it's yeah, like and it, it brings us back to this phenomenon that it's really a human specific evolution. And so we can really say music defines us humans. I mean, of course, also songbirds, but right. us humans in particular. But we could debate that's, that's whether, songbird, whether songbird songs <laughs> music. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Oh, like, well. Songbird yeah. song is informative. Songbird song tells conspecifics either here I am back off or here I am come and get it or whatever the song means at the time. It's got a communicative component. Yeah. And music is not communicating content in the same way. So I think there's a really important difference between songbird song and all other forms of, you know, animal song. Whale yeah. song whale there's song. also... There's also not much evidence that animals, even those that have, that make sounds that we might consider sort of musical, like like whales or birds, they don't really make these sounds in isolation by themselves. They're all, yeah, they're always trying to communicate something and they don't seem to do it just kind of for fun. It serves a very sort of specific purpose. So okay, in some Dana, ways it does seem very different. Then I think I, I need to disagree here because I, if you talk to the songbird people, you know, first of all, they sing to themselves, they dream of singing and all this. And, and I, I bet you they have also pleasure singing. So, but, but uh, that actually, maybe is a, a topic second. that we can discuss. Wait a yes, Nancy. Actually a, a functional MRI study in songbirds. Okay. And if I remember correctly, the finding was a songbird getting played songs of its uh, species does show an analog of a reward response, but mm -hmm. only when the meaning of that song is positive for that bird in that context, like, oh, there's a mate for me, right? Mm. And that means yes, there's a pleasure component, but there's a pleasure component in the way there would be if I said a sentence to you, which had a positive meaning. Mm. Different from music. <laughs> okay, sorry. I think this on. is a cool topic for, <laughs> for, for exchange between the songbird people and, and the human people, because yeah, I think uh, it, it's fascinating. So, um, does your study now have implication for disease and translational medicine? And I'm, I'm thinking, for example, Parkinson patients, you know, they, if you play them drum beats or music, suddenly their movements go very smooth and, and they can overcome obstacles. So do you think that area could play a role in, in translational medicine? Yeah, this is, this is a great question. Um, and actually, some of the sort of things that you just mentioned about sort of Parkinson's patients and, and similar like mysteries about that are actually what got me interested in neuroscience in the first place. So I, I started college as a music therapy major um, because I had heard sort of these kinds of stories and I was interested in, in working with neurological patients and using music. Um, and even though I, I pretty quickly realized that I was actually more interested in understanding why music had this effect on the brain and not so much on being the therapist putting these things into practice, I still sort of have a soft spot for that sort of area and have a mm -hmm. lot of friends who are music therapists. And yeah, it's it's, fascinating that, you know, just playing, you know, strumming chords on a guitar can help someone with Parkinson's initiate gait and sort of walk smoothly. 
There's all kinds of interesting findings in uh, Alzheimer's patients or people with aphasia. So there are clearly, you know, a lot of interesting connections between music uh, perception and um, various neurological disorders. Um, I think there's still uh, a lot of additional research we would need in order to know whether the regions that we're seeing in auditory cortex are sort of involved in any of that. So a lot of this seems to incorporate sort of brain systems like the motor system and things that are beyond the scope of what we were looking at in this study. But it, it's possible that a better understanding of exactly how music is sort of processed in the brain and how that might fit with other systems that that could inform our understanding of why these sorts of connections between music and, and disorders exist. But yeah, that, that would be fascinating, but many, many years in the future, I think. <laughs> now, Dana, thanks for giving us this, this also your personal story about it. Yeah. Maybe I can ask Nancy, uh, you know, uh, Often the listeners want to know the background, how this study evolved and how you designed this study and, and what was the role of your team in this? Could you maybe talk about this a little bit? Yeah, well, we had first, the first study that my lab did on music was done by Ev Fedorenko. And she was, she was very interested in language. And as you mentioned a while ago, many people have argued that language and music seem to be connected, right? They're both uniquely human. They're natively auditory. Reading is a very recent thing. Uh, they have this complex hierarchical structure. And so there was lots, there's been lots of speculation that there are similar brain mechanisms for music and language. Uh, and so Ev was interested in language and she decided to ask whether there was overlap in the brain in the regions that process language and music. Uh, and so she found ways to identify brain regions that respond to music compared to scrambled music and that respond to language compared to scrambled language. And she found no overlap whatsoever, showing that they're just completely separate in the brain. To find that you have to be very, you have to do your study very carefully. You have to look within individual subjects Because if you average your data across subjects, you can find all kinds of overlap, but it's just due to the blurring that happens when you average across individuals with different functional organization. If you look within subjects, you find no overlap at all. So that was part of a whole project to say, okay, language is really a very specific separate thing in the brain. Language is separate from thought. It's separate from, you know, you use different regions for arithmetic and working memory and uh, all these other things. Um, and so it was almost sort of a, a control condition for language originally. And then we thought, oh, well, that music is pretty interesting in its own right. Uh, and then uh, after that initial study, Sam Norman Hegner joined the lab and we decided to do something quite different from pretty much everything else we'd done in my lab before. All, my, all the other stuff in my lab had been very hypothesis driven. So we'd come up with an idea like, okay, maybe there's a special brain region for you know, perceiving bodies. Let's look oh, look, there it is. Although most of the time we'd look for things and not find anything. Uh, but here we decided to do something different, which was let's just broadly sample auditory experience, the kinds of things people hear frequently in everyday life. And let's play all those sounds to people, the ones that uh, Dana played for you earlier. Let's scan them while they listen to all these sounds. Let's collect a lot of data from the whole responsive auditory cortex. And let's shake the data and try to figure out what the basic structure is. So Dana, Dana told you in a little more uh, precise detail what that means mathematically, but essentially we let the data tell us what the basic structure was. And it was really remarkable to me the degree to which uh, selectivity for music just popped out of those data. 
right? You, like you didn't even have to do much, and, you know? And so what that meant was not just, if you go looking for music selectivity and you try really hard, you can find something. It says, no, you take the responsive auditory cortex to a broad range of everyday sounds. And one of the dominant things that just spontaneously leaps out of the data is selectivity for music. So that was awesome. But you know, because you had to do a bunch of math between the data and the result, it always made me nervous. I like to see the result right in the raw data. So you had to do this independent component analysis, blah, blah, blah. And I always worried that somewhere in the math, the math confabulated this thing that wasn't real, right? So that's why I was thrilled when we got to do some intracranial recordings from neurosurgery patients with electrodes right on the surface of the brain. And we found individual electrodes that responded stunningly selectively to music. And that was no math, no nothing. You just look at the response and you see it. So that really wow. confirmed the methods we've used with functional MRI. That is fascinating. Wow. Okay. I can tell you that music, I mean, is a game changer for myself and for a lot of people. So no wonder it pops out and you don't need statistics. It's, it's incredible. What are the next steps from here? So where, where do you want to take this study now? Yeah. So I think there are still several open questions after the results that we found. And some of them are the things that we've already discussed today, like whether these music selective populations uh, are sort of baked into the brain and sort of present at birth or whether they reflect the implicit knowledge that we sort of gain throughout our lives. So there's, there's a lot of questions um, that would be really interesting to answer about that. Um, we're still not sure it's sort of the best way to do that and sort of disentangle those, those two possibilities. It would involve, you know, scanning people who've had very different musical exposures than, than what's typical um, amongst, you know, the American subjects that live in sort of this internet connected society. We would have to find people outside of these sorts of cultures or find people who have you know, for some reason haven't been exposed to music for much of their life. And that would be extremely difficult if, if possible at all. But one of the other questions that I think is, is really interesting is again, something we talked about, which is like, what exactly do these music selective populations, like what's driving them? What are they responding to in music? We learned a bit more in this experiment that it's not just melody, it responds strongly to drums. It's not uh, purely driven by sort of familiarity with specific kinds of music. So there, there's some sort of feature or set of features that are relatively specific to music, but not specific to Western music that seem to be driving these responses. So we're, we're working on some experiments now to try to get at that, but that's again, a pretty, a pretty difficult question and um, hopefully we'll have more answers about that soon. Very cool. So take home messages. What kind of important take-home messages can we bring the listener before we close? Yeah, so I guess the existence of music and some of the sort of things we've talked about today that it's, it's such a fascinating thing that seems to be unique to humans, but present sort of in all cultures throughout time and around the world is sort of really intriguing. And these recent findings from, from our lab and from others, there seems to be this, this music region is really exciting and trying to understand the connection between this musical region and sort of our perception of music is, is really exciting. And so this, this study um, goes part of the way in telling us sort of that this, this music selective response seems to be present in everybody's brains. It doesn't require sort of training. It seems to be just a fundamental part of, as Nancy said, like what it means to be, to be a human. And I think that's just really exciting and something that tells us a lot about, about the human brain and how it's organized. Wonderful. Dana and Nancy, 
I really congratulate you again for this wonderful study. And thank you so much that you published this in, in Journal Neurophysiology. And, and I look forward to your follow-up studies. And I thank you so much for the, for the in exciting interview. And I hope we can do it again. So thank you so much. Thank you yeah. so much. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.